everything is temporary and may last a minute or an hour or a day or a year, but eventually it will subside and something else will take its place. If I quit, however, it lasts forever. That surrender, even the smallest act of giving up, stays with me. Welcome back to another episode of Oncology of the Inquisitive Mind. Michael, knowing how inquisitive you are, do you know who said that quote? Honestly, Josh, my first instinct was that it was Rocky Balboa and I was <laughs> expecting you to do your best Sylvester Stallone impression, which uh, is not fit for broadcast, but I suspect I'm wrong. You are very much incorrect. That, ah, rats. <laughs> that's all right. That was Lance Edward Armstrong, the American former professional road racing cyclist who won the Tour de Force and there were some controversies. But ultimately, I should have very much used this quote when we did our testicular miniseries. And if you haven't checked that out, it's a couple of episodes ago and it's great. But this week, we're going to continue our Tour de Force of neuroendocrine tumors. That was a specific request from a loyal fan about using that quote. But Michael, do you want to give us the background? Josh, I will say that you said... Um, Lance Armstrong won the Tour de Force. Well, Tour de France. Oh, my God. (laughs) And we're not going to edit that, I'm sure. So Lance Armstrong did win the Tour de France, and this is our Tour de Force of neuroendocrine tumors. Michael, thank you for for correcting me, (laughs) but do you want to start this episode before I shrink further from the microphone? Yes, I think that's probably a good idea. Let's uh, get this back on track. We've gone through advanced, well-differentiated, low-grade neuroendocrine tumors, and not to spoil anything, but our next and final episode in this series will be focusing on neuroendocrine carcinomas, which are a very different entity. However, there is a in-between point. There is a type of neuroendocrine tumor that is too high grade for a intermediate grade neuroendocrine tumor classification, but not aggressive enough, not small cell enough to be called a neuroendocrine carcinoma. And so this episode will have a particular focus on the entity of well-differentiated grade three neuroendocrine tumors. This is a fairly new entity and you can sort of tell that it was a a bit of a plugging of a hole in the original 20 in the original 2010 WHO classification so it only was inaugurated shall we say in the updated classifications published in 2017 and it was specifically created to account for tumors with a well differentiated morphology and a key 67 of greater than 20% and or a mitotic index of greater than 20 mitoses per 10 high powered fields for reference a low grade neuroendocrine tumor has a key 67 of less than 3% and a Intermediate grade has a key 67 of 3 to 20%, so grade 1 and grade 2 respectively. So grade 3 neuroendocrine tumours account for approximately 20% of all nets. They're most commonly found in the pancreas, the colon and the rectum, and the stomach. There is a scarcity of data about these tumours, which is a refrain that you'll hear repeated multiple times in this episode. But depending on the source, the frequency of grade three neuroendocrine tumors arising from the pancreas 
is between 10 and 65% of all neuroendocrine tumors arising from that region. Michael, do you find that just a huge reference range, 10 to 65%? Well, as our listeners will soon realize, we are talking about series that will have 10, 20, 30 patients. So that is between, for example, one to six patients out of 10. It's a very wide reference range, but it is also taken from data sets that are very small. And it's a very rare cancer. It is. It's a rare subtype of a rare cancer. But there is the potential that the more we look at neuroendocrine tumors and the more are diagnosed, the more experience we have, that the rate of these grade three neuroendocrine tumors will increase. In terms of colon and rectal grade three nets, these account for between eight to 25% and a similar incidence with grade three nets arising from the stomach. Between 5 and 50% of grade 3 nets are functional tumors. And if we're trying to draw areas of differentiation between grade 3 nets and the similar but at the same time very different neuroendocrine carcinomas, 0 to 6% of neuroendocrine carcinomas or NECs are functional. So if you have a functional tumor, aka a tumor that lights up on functional imaging such as dotatate or GATate PET scans, symptoms consistent with carcinoid syndrome, it is much more likely to be a grade three neuroendocrine tumor as opposed to a neuroendocrine carcinoma. In terms of tumor markers, there are several that are used in common clinical practice. We've mentioned chromogranin A, which is a terrible, terrible marker for diagnosis, but is a good marker for a monitoring response to treatment, as well as the transformation from a neuroendocrine tumor to a neuroendocrine carcinoma, which is something that we do see. There is also the neuron-specific elastase, or NSE, which I've seen mainly in trials. I haven't seen it uh, used clinically. Uh, Josh, I don't know if you've seen NSE used as a diagnostic tool. From my clinical experience, I've, I've never seen it used, Michael. We used a fair bit of chromogranin A to assess response, just like you said so eloquently and wisely. Michael is the wisest amongst us, but no, I have not used this. Yeah, I, it might be something that is coming in the future, but a lot of labs might not be set up to actually uh, examine for the NSE. The other marker that's used is uh, 5-HIAA or urinary 5-HIAA, which is generally used as a marker for mid-gut functional tumors. And so if you have a non-functioning tumor, the 5-HIAA is unlikely to be significant. One study found elevated chromogranin A was uh, present in 42% of cases, NSE elevated in 25% of cases, and 5-HIAA in 25% of cases as well. However, this study only had 12 patients in total, and this is emblematic of the problem, Josh, that we have these percentages, but they're kind of pointless when you're only dealing with, with a population of 12 patients. That's it. It's just so difficult to make any assessment with such a small, diverse heterogeneous group of cancers. Yeah, absolutely. As mentioned before, most grade three nets do overexpress somatostatin receptors on SRI or somatostatin receptor imaging. That's your dotatate and your gadate PETs. And there is an inverse correlation between key 67 and the maximum standard uptake values or SUV max on these, on these imaging modalities. Again, another small series, 25% of grade three nets had FDG avid components, which means that in common parlance, FDG PETs are used to differentiate and investigate when a lower grade neuroendocrine tumor might be developing into a more aggressive 
neuroendocrine carcinoma. However, because a small but significant proportion of grade 3 NETs have FDG avidity at a baseline, the utility of this what we call FDG discordant disease might be slightly less compared to lower grade neuroendocrine tumors, which are typically mostly negative on FDG pets. It's also important to note that grade three neuroendocrine tumors with their key 67 values, with their mitotic indexes, they are a range. And the higher the key 67, in general, the more aggressive the cancer is going to behave. But it does show the heterogeneity, which Josh mentioned before, of this tumor group. However, if we're going to draw a direct comparison to grade 3 nets compared to neuroendocrine carcinomas, they generally carry a much better prognosis. And some, and some studies, again, small series, we keep on saying it, but some studies suggest that the prognosis of grade 3 nets is similar to intermediate grade 2 nets. One study demonstrated a survival ranging from 41 to 99 months compared to 5.3 to 17 months with neuroendocrine carcinomas. However, the higher grade of a grade 3 net compared to grade 1 and grade 2 also carries a higher risk of metastases at diagnosis, which is a major risk factor and a major impact on overall prognosis. The data on treatment, stop me if you've heard this before, Josh, but the data on treatment of grade 3 nets is scarce. What a surprise. The use of somatostatin analogs is generally recommended to be done with caution and close monitoring because the evidence is not there. The seminal studies, which include the clarinet study, which we spoke about a couple of episodes ago. And Michael, Michael, don't forget you played the clarinet a lot during high school. Oh, you just had to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> Never misses an opportunity, this man. But the clarinet study did not include any grade three nets. The classification actually didn't exist at the time of the study being published. So if you do have a grade three net, the general recommendations are to use agents such as lanreotide, other somatostatin analogs with caution and close monitoring because the efficacy is unknown. It might not be significant. Although Josh it would stand to reason that if you have a somatostatin receptor expressing tumor, then blocking that tumor would produce some therapeutic effect. You would think so because it's when you've got a receptor and you stop it, theoretically it should have a response, but maybe there's multiple mechanisms we're unaware of and thus it's a bit of a superfluous like inhibiting, inhibiting, I don't know, AKT or inhibiting, you know, EGFR and it becomes pick, resistant. Pick three kinase, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The other agents that we've discussed already in this series were everolimus and sunitinib, and there is some evidence that these agents will have some effect. There is a phase two study of everolimus in this population called Evinec, but this study is ongoing and we don't yet have the results. So we will await that with great excitement. The other thing that is frequently brought up in the treatment of these grade three neuroendocrine tumors is platinum-based chemotherapy. The rationale for this comes from the extrapolation of the standard treatment for neuroendocrine carcinomas. So moving away from grouping them with the neuroendocrine tumors and more towards the neuroendocrine carcinomas. But again, it makes it tricky to extrapolate any data from other sites because this is very much a spectrum of disease. What little evidence there is, is that platinum chemotherapy really doesn't work in this population. Again, we're dealing with several small series, but they consistently demonstrate a less than 5% response rate for platinum-based chemotherapy in grade 3 NET. 
There are three series that I looked at in preparation for this episode. One published by uh, Velaidum Sefis et al. in 2015 demonstrated a response rate of 0%, absolute zero. Uh, A series published by Heatfield et al. in 2015 demonstrated a response rate of 2%. And uh, another series by Hijioka et al. in 2017 demonstrated a response rate, again, of 0%. There is a suggestion that more aggressive lesions respond better to platinum-based chemotherapy, probably because, in essence, they are getting towards that neuroendocrine carcinoma where key 67 values are frequently greater than 70%. There was a subgroup of grade 3 well-differentiated pancreatic pancreatic nets in the Nordic study, which demonstrated a higher response rate for patients with neuroendocrine tumors with a key 67 of greater than 55% specifically a response rate of 42% versus 15% in those with a key 67 of less than 55%. Platinum-based therapy is probably not recommended in this space, but the evidence is quite flimsy, I would say, quite uh, thin on the ground. Josh, originally this episode, we were going to do two studies, as is our custom, speaking about platinum-based therapy and your study, which we'll get to in a moment, but because there is so little data, we figured that we would talk about the disease more and then focus on your study of capecitabine and temozolomide, which has much more promising results. It is a low bar to clear, though. I don't actually know if there is a bar if platinum-based chemotherapy has zero response rate. The bar is the floor. Yes, it is. But speaking of bars... If you like our podcast, please like and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you if you want to us to talk about anything specifically. And my aim for the 100th episode, which is a little while away, is to get Michael to sing his rendition of Les Mis. But keep that in your pocket because I'm, <laughs> I'm going to convince him. It might take several months, but it will happen. It'll take at least 40 more episodes. <laughs> at least, at least. I must, say, I must say that wasn't your best segue, Josh. There was no segue, but let's segue back to the actual topic at hand, which is, and I guess the article we're going to talk about, which is the CAPTEM study, which is capecitabine and temozolomide in advanced neuroendocrine neoplasm, so the NENS, and it was a systematic review and pooled analysis coming from you all the way from the City of Love, Right. Michael's already gone through most of the background. Josh, point of point of order, isn't the city of love Paris? Well, maybe Rome is taking <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> I th- I think ladies and gentlemen that Josh's anti-French bias is being uh exposed in this episode. First he calls the Tour de France the Tour de Force and now he erroneously ascribes the city of love to Rome. Look, Rome's a, Rome's a very romantic city. I don't know if you've been, but it's a great place to go. We're going to have some very angry French reviews coming through fairly soon. We will, but uh, I love the French. Anyway, the background, Michael's pretty much covered. The prognosis as a, uh, a summary is that it depends on the morphology, the KI67 reproductive marker, site of origin, and the grade the WHO classification breaks everything down and the management is really multidisciplinary and there are options which include somatostatin analogs, TKIs, the mTOR inhibitors like Everolimus from our last episode, the Dotatate Lutetium or PRRT 
And of course, the ugly duckling of the group, which is never going to become a beautiful swan, chemotherapy. All of these studies, apart from chemotherapy, have been based on randomized controlled trials. Chemotherapy prior to very recently had not. And of course, what they knew or the background information is that alkylating agent temozolomide showed promising activity and tolerance profile either as a single agent or in combination with capecitabine. You might remember temozolomide from glioblastoma multiforme. That's where it's predominantly used with the Stupp protocol. And of course, you've got the capecitabine, which is pretty much used throughout the oncological world, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, upper GI cancer, neuroendocrine tumor cancers. Any Anything else, Michael? No, it kind of is the Meryl Streep of the oncological world. It's so multi-talented. It's used pretty much everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much murders in the building. <laughs> yes, that's very topical. <laughs> um, but but if, you've, if you've got a cancer, you've probably used capecitabine. That's it. And the issue that the authors highlighted is, is that there is no high-quality evidence or prospective randomised phase 3 controlled trials for chemotherapy. They did a meta-analysis and most data was retrospective. There are only four phase one to two studies published, and most use the gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. And there are some evidence that suggests a role of chemotherapy in neuroendocrine tumors and the lung and thymic origin, which are even rarer subtypes. So they did a systematic review with the primary endpoint being disease control rate, which I'll abbreviate as DCR which is the percentage of patients who had a partial response, complete response, or stable response, with the secondary endpoints being median progression-free survival, median overall survival, grade 3, grade 4 toxicity. So they found 42 articles, 1,900 or so patients. 38 of these were retrospective. Two articles were phase 2 studies. Two articles were phase 1 to 2 studies, and... They whittled it down to about 1818 patients. That's one way to get over the problem of small series is just bundle them all together and try and analyse them as a whole. Yeah, so it's, it's a commonly pra- common practice, especially in rarer cancers where you don't have a lot of robust data. So if anyone hasn't looked at a systematic review, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting way that they do it and they kind of analyse everything and use very fancy mathematical things to give us an answer. The patient characteristics, so 90% of the articles or the patients were the GEP, so gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, and two studies had lung and one was unknown. The average age was between 47 and 63, so younger than a lot of our other cancers, and most studies involved grade one to grade three, typical and atypical uh, uh, neuroendocrine tumors. 26% of studies involved neuroendocrine carcinomas, which is the more aggressive and less friendly of already an unfriendly bunch of cancers. Speaking of the drug regimen and administration, just because it's a little bit weird, we don't use it that often, capecitabine is the standard capecitabine. You give it twice a day, day 1 to 14, and you'll have a week off. And the temozolomide was given for day 10 to day 14. Michael, do you know why, I think just from an education perspective, temozolomide, why they don't give it more? I do not, Josh. Please tell me. You do know. Uh, You're just humoring my silly question. Um, It's because it's so myelosuppressive. 
I do know that a big thing with temozolomide is uh, not just any garden variety myelosuppression, but particularly lymphopenia. So if you have patients, and this is in the um, GBM cohort, but if you have patients on temozolomide, you do need to be very careful of not just bacterial infections, but viral infections as well. Josh is nodding. I have Josh's nod of approval. Moving on. Thank you, Michael, for saying how much you like my nod. The primary endpoints, when we looked at the efficacy, what they found, this is the outcome, everyone. The efficacy showed a disease control rate of 77%, a stable disease in 40%, partial response in 34%, complete response in 2%, and progressive disease in 18.5% of the patients. The secondary endpoints, this is the, the culmination of everything, and the median progression-free survival was only reported in 35 studies, and it ranged from 4 to 38.5 months. And the median overall survival was in 32 studies, and that was from 8 to 103 months. And you were giving me uh, grief about a wide reference range before, Josh. That's, that's a huge range. I prefer the term chick. Eight studies, the median overall survival was not reached. The duration of treatment, which I went to look because that wasn't really reported in the the SIVES 2016 article with uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, grade one to three, it had about nine cycles as a, as a rule. And the Lamarca 2017 study had about six cycles. But that's kind of extracting two and just having a discussion. So... To really pin down these results, because they are quite difficult to interpret, I suspect that the best takeaway from this would be to re-emphasize that neuroendocrine tumors, and this included neuroendocrine carcinomas, as you said, are, are an incredibly heterogeneous group of diseases with very variable outcomes. That, that's exactly it. So that, that's really the summary, isn't it, Michael? It's heterogeneous, and there's not a lot of good data out there and all the data that we do have kind of doesn't infer the same outcomes, which is probably because these aren't high volume sites. You know, you get 30 patients or you get 47 patients. I'm looking at the number of patients in these studies, 30, 25, 28, 30, 65, 153, very, very small studies. Even the reference range was was small as well. So that that's something to kind of talk about the number of cycles. And if we look at the safety, safety was analyzed in a bit over a thousand patients, 13 studies had no data reported. 16.4% of the population had grade three to grade four toxicity with hematological being the predominant one at 27.2%, gastrointestinal at 8.3%, cutaneous at 3.2% with hand foot syndrome. And others, there was a smattering of insomnia, anorexia, asthenia, and mucositis. So moving to the discussion, there was toxicity. They've said that surgical resection is the gold standard. Of interest, a recent phase two trial, which is a prospective phase two trial, including unresectable and metastatic gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, grade three, which for them had a KI67 of greater than 20 percent and less than 55 percent that was treated with CAPTEM showed significant progression-free survival and overall survival improvement in NETs compared to NECs, NECs, being neuroendocrine carcinomas. And that reference difference was 9.3 months 
versus 3.5 months versus not reached versus the 6.2 months when we talk about progression-free survival in the first one of 9.3 versus 3.5 and overall survival in the not reached versus 6.2 months favoring neuroendocrine tumors. Note that neuroendocrine tumors had a lower objective response rate of 15.4% versus 34.8%. Wasn't statistically significant, and I haven't gone into finer detail, but I suspect it's probably a small number with this trial. And the disease control rate was lower in the neuroendocrine carcinomas as well versus the than the neuroendocrine tumors. So it was 42.9% versus 98% in the neuroendocrine tumors, Michael. So you can see there the response to this treatment regimen very much is favoring that grade one to grade three neuroendocrine tumor cohort. Yeah, so CAPE-TEM is definitely an option when you've got a high-grade neuroendocrine tumor or even in the lower-grade setting, which was included in this meta-analysis after you've gone through all of the stuff we've talked about in previous episodes, lanreotide, everolimus, PRT, sunitinib. But if you've got a neuroendocrine carcinoma, and this sort of emphasizes the importance of continual monitoring and you know, looking for increasing FDG avidity on a, um, on a on a FDG PET scan, increasing rate of discordant disease, uh, that it might not be something that you want to necessarily use for um, a neuroendocrine carcinoma. That's exactly it. And the only other interesting trial, which is another randomized phase two trial called the E2211, which compared CAPTEM versus temozolomide monotherapy in 144 patients with low or intermediate-grade pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. What they found is that there was no difference in objective response rate. So 33.3% for CAPTEM versus 27.8% for temozolomide, not statistically significant, but there was a statistically significant longer progression-free survival favoring CAPTEM of 22.7 months versus 14.4 months. There was imbalance in this arm as one of the patients included in the CAPTEM arm had pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor of significantly lower grade, which could justify the similarity in the objective response rates and a propensity score. So there, there, there were some flaws, I guess, in this particular study. But again, in saying that the there was benefit in the CAPTEM and, you know, it's not a phase three trial either way, which is what we would like, but I don't know if you're ever going to get one with such a small, rare group of diseases. I would very much agree with that, Josh. So a big part of how you approach treatment of these lower-grade uh, neuroendocrine tumors, and particularly with this rare grade three, well-differentiated NETS, is going to be down to personal and institutional experience. I don't really think there's any good evidence that Josh and I have found that could help with sequencing. So it's really looking at the patient, speaking with your MDTs, canvassing opinion from specialist sites, hospitals that are more uh, familiar with treating neuroendocrine tumors in higher volumes, and really just sort of making the best of the available evidence, because I don't think there's going to be a uh, clear article or a, or a subject defining seminal trial on these tumors because they're just too rare yes just too too rare mike but speaking of rare like quality podcasts like ours what's our next episode going to be well we've sort of beaten around the bush this episode 
mentioning the neuroendocrine carcinoma entity quite a bit. These are the basically, Josh, they're they're small cell without the small cell. They're very aggressive, very nasty, again, very rare, but treated in much the same way. So not to spoil things too much, but we will be looking at platinum-based chemotherapy, which is much more effective in the carcinoma space than the neuroendocrine tumor space. And we'll also be looking at the inexorable intrusion of immunotherapy, try saying that five times fast, into this space with the amazingly named Spartaluzumab. So expect many references to the film 300. And because I am such a nice guy, I'm going to let Michael talk about Sparta, Spartaluzumab. Is that the name? Yes. Yes. I'll be saying, I'll be saying this is Spartaluzumab an awful lot. And getting t-shirts, matching t-shirts. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so if you want to listen to more rambling about Spartaluzumab or really any anything related to oncology, we hope that you will join us next week and maybe go back and listen to our previous episodes. They're all just as messy, but no less informative for you. We'll see you next week. Bye, Michael. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com. Yeah.